Welcome to Leading with Empathy and Allyship, where we have deep, real conversations to build empathy for one another and to take action to be more inclusive and to lead the change in our workplaces and communities. I'm Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst and author of How to Be an Ally. I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, advocate, and advisor. You can learn more about my work and sign up to join us for a live recording at ally.cc. All right, let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Today, we're talking with Jennifer Brown, founder and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, and Rohit Bargava, founder and chief trend curator at Non-Obvious Company. They're also co-authors of a new book, Beyond Diversity. So hello to you both. How are you? Hello. Wonderful. Thank you. Really good. Thanks, Melinda. Okay. So Jennifer, we have heard from you that there's a whole episode uh, where Jennifer and I talk deeply, uh, episode seven. So go check it out, learn all about her, her story there. <laughs> and we'll also add a link in the show notes. Um, so Rohit, can you tell us a bit about your story since we haven't heard yours? Sure. So my story is that I was born in India and I grew up in the US, but I traveled all the time. My dad worked at the World Bank. And so I grew up sort of an international kid. Um, I've lived in Australia and the Philippines, and now I'm back and living in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, I spent most of my career working in the marketing and advertising industry. And lately, for the last five years plus, I've been teaching organizations and leaders how to be more innovative and use what I call non-obvious thinking. So I come from the world of now, innovation and trends. Awesome. And can you say a bit about what non-obvious thinking means? What does that, what does that look like? Yeah. So for me, non-obvious thinking is essentially seeing what everyone else misses and teaching yourself how to be the sort of person that that sees those patterns and sees those details. And I think it's uh, Jennifer and I were talking about this um, several weeks ago. There's a huge overlap between the people who are able to do that and the people who are able to appreciate the value of diversity and inclusive teams to have that sort of perspective. So there's kind of a big overlap between those two things, which I know we'll talk about today. So from a non-obvious perspective, looking at diversity, I think that's kind of how you ended up with the, the term beyond diversity, which is the name of your book and also the name of the conference as well. What does beyond diversity mean? What, did, what was that thought? I love this word beyond because really what it says to me is that we're thinking about what's next. And Beyond Diversity was specifically a book about going beyond the conversation, which has already started and been going for some time around diversity and to talk about real action. And not just real action for society or civilization, but real action for you, for me, for us. Uh, what can each of us do to create a more inclusive world? Uh, and then how can we collectively impact the organizations that we're part of, whether it's where we work or the clubs and groups that we're part of? to enable that to happen for them as well. So that's what going beyond diversity meant for us. There's so many diversity elements and dimensions that are not visible to the eye or that we may think we perceive correctly, but are missing the truth. So I also love the question of beyond and, and what is non-obvious as a broader palette of diversity dimensions that we need to be inclusive of when we endeavor to bring our full selves to this world and to be seen and heard and valued. And when we endeavor to speak about what diversity actually means, because a lot of people still assume it means race and gender. 
Um, and then we sort of tack on sexual orientation and gender identity and tack on disabilities. And like, it's evolved a bit, but I think it needs to evolve a whole, whole lot more and more quickly to speak to all the diversity dimensions that shape our experience and the way the world hears and sees us or, or not. And so making the invisible visible is part of how we change the dialogue. And, and in the book, we tried to make the invisible storyteller with the invisible and visible diversity dimensions visible. Like it's centering that and mm. those non-obvious stories that bring those things to light, I think, are the what powers the book. Yeah. And also, uh, here, I have the book right here. Everybody, oh, yeah. this is what it looks like. <laughs> we love that um, cover. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I, I think, actually, do you want to talk about the cover really briefly? We'll have it um, for those of you who are on YouTube, you can have this benefit. <laughs> <laughs> Rohit, so. talk, talk about the artist. <laughs> yeah, so we found an amazing artist. Her name's Zaria Shin. She's a, a mosaic artist. And what she does is create these beautiful pieces of art that are usually people's faces, actually. She has some really iconic versions of individuals' faces. And when we contacted her, we wanted something a little different because this book wasn't going to have Jennifer or my face on the cover. It's not about us. Mm -hmm. um, it's about everyone. And so we really gave her the challenge of doing something a little bit outside of her wheelhouse, still using the style that she typically uses. And she came up with something just absolutely wonderful. And so what you'll see on the cover is there's actually uh, five rows of three circles. And so it's sort of a grid pattern. And beyond diversity has exactly the correct number of letters to actually fit into those three letters across five letters down. And the first two letters, B, and the almost final two letters of diversity, IT, stand out as be it, which was sort of a reminder for us and for anybody who picks up the book that this book is really about you taking action, you being the change that you want to see in the world as the iconic cliche goes. And so the, the, the book is actually not... Uh, I would say it's a non-obvious way to arrange a diversity book as well. I mean, that the chapters are in storytelling and identity and family and culture and education and retail and the workplace and technology and entrepreneurship, leadership, government, and the future. So can you just say briefly kind of where those chapters came from, how you, how you composed this book? Sure. Uh, well, we did this massive summit which was called Beyond Diversity and had over 200 voices pulled together and so much content to curate that it struck us that how, did, how in the world are we going to fit this into the pages of a book and choose? But what came to light, again, a non-obvious way of, of sorting, right? That normally we, we, we talk about DEI in terms of identity buckets, if you will. And so we could have sorted it that way, but instead... The powerful new way we tried to, to bucket information and stories and storytellers was by domain of life, like society. Like, what are the, the all the areas that touch each of us in all these realms of our life? You know, education, where we shop, you know, retail, the future, um, government, leadership, the workplace. And that was my specialty area, obviously. But it was so cool as a co-author with Rohit to really have my own mind expanded. And then think about how could we write a book that's that you could jump into at any point and read something that really, really hits you where you live, like in your everyday life, where, where this is sort of an exciting adventure to investigate 
what do you mean diversity in retail? Like, I, I just think a lot of people would look at that quizzically and say, well, I, I don't know what those have to do with each other. And the juxtaposition, that, you know, way that we're challenging the reader to, in every moment of our lives and all these services we access in the communities that we're a part of, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it takes it out of the realm, Melinda, we've talked about this, out of the realm of agree, disagree, you know, that binary we get into, that struggle, that polarization where some of us are for this and some of us are against this. It takes it out of that. And it says, here's how it weaves like a thread through the fabric of each of our lives. And my hope is it presents it in such a digestible concise and entertaining way and new way that it becomes kind of hard to disagree with it, you know, Mm. because how do you disagree with something that's like the water in the air around us? I think of it these days as such a great starter book, like such a good foundation before perhaps people get to your book and my book, which feels a bit like a bit... A little more of an advanced application, but it lays a groundwork to say, hey, this is happening everywhere. You know, and it's not happening to you. It's happening for us. Mm-hmm. And these are all the ways that you, where you live, like Rohit said, be it. We end each chapter with very concrete actions that anyone of any, any identity in any scenario, any environment, any ecosystem can do. So I was really excited about sorting it that way. And I think also... Rohit, I'll let you make this point about how it kind of juxtaposes different storytellers in a really unique way, too, given the structure we chose. Yeah, it it does use a lot of voices. And you mentioned the summit, which was a huge catalyst for this, um, not only in the inspiration of it, but also in the voices that we wanted to include. And, And both Jennifer and I really take to heart our roles as storytellers much more than kind of researchers or academics. And so when you pick up this book, what you'll read are lots of stories with themes behind them that give us lessons for how to live and and the world that we could create if we were to invest our time and energy to do that. And I think that that just makes for a much more interesting read uh, because one of the big audiences we were writing for it was the people who aren't doing this every day, you know, the people who are not DEI professionals, the people who are you know, in college, taking the one diversity course that they will take in their four years at college and wanting to give them a background in why this exists as a topic and why it matters. And more than why it matters for moral reasons, why it matters because it can make you better. It can make the company that you work for better. I mean, there's a real business impact behind this too. So we didn't want to just go for this is how you should believe because the world should be more equitable. I mean, we believe that, and and I think that's true. And I think a lot of people believe that, but we wanted to go beyond the morality of the argument to actually talk about the real impact of it too. Let's get some to some specifics about a couple of different chapters here and what you learned. And storytelling, uh, many of you listeners know storytelling is dear and dear to my heart as a former documentary filmmaker. And I believe that storytelling, storytelling really does change the world and, and we, we, change, we change hearts and minds through stories. And so it's a through line throughout the book, but also the first chapter of the book as well. Um, so what did you learn? What are some of the kind of key learnings around storytelling that you brought out in the book? We want storytellers to find other storytellers, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, through giving visibility to the most fascinating, non-obvious, courageous lives that are being lived and to be able to platform that 
And to start with that, I think Rohit, it was like you just said, we're not, we're not academics, we're storytellers. Like this is, we believe in storytelling as powerful to change the world, just like you, Melinda. So I think that we, we are proud of starting there and our own stories play a role too. Like I start with my story of having lost my voice as an opera singer and fighting to get it back, but then learning that I needed to use it in a different way. And then learning that I needed to, in my DEI work, to give voice to the voiceless and having that full circle moment of what was I actually put here to do and how did it start? What was the genesis of it? But then the twists and turns as they go and, and how did I get the courage then to step forward and share all of that? So we were blessed on the summit with so many courageous innovators So we wanted to unpack in that chapter sort of what makes stories so powerful, what are some examples of powerful, non-obvious storytellers, and, you know, how can also we celebrate that people can be this and that. It's also, I think, demonstrating intersectionality and making that very real. It's another concept, Melinda, you and I probably spend a lot of time, like, explaining what it is, Um, and I think we will continue to do so. But it's such a powerful, um, no one is a single story either. So, and I've been fascinated with my non-obvious story of being LGBTQ and making that obvious and actually utilizing it as a source of power as a change agent. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's been so profound for me. It's how I start every talk I give is my personal story. It's the way that I get into hearts and minds and kind of open that door and prop my foot in the door and I don't let it close and make sure that I'm heard. And um, that was just such an honor to be able to start that way with the book. But Rohit, I'd love to hear what, you know, what it meant for you and maybe your favorite part from the chapter too. To me, stories, as, as somebody who spent most of his career in marketing, stories are a form of persuasion. And that can be a good thing because they can teach us about new ways of seeing the world. And it can also be a negative thing because We see people in certain ways based on how they're depicted in the stories that we consume, whether it's through books or films or TV. And storytelling has both of those things. And so we didn't want to shy away from that, but we wanted to talk about, well, what does that mean to not just consume different stories as consumers of media and entertainment, but to give the mic or the camera to storytellers who previously haven't had a chance to have it? And what stories would they tell if they could speak for themselves instead of having someone else depict them in a certain way? And I think storytelling has all of that, which is why not only we wanted to explore it as a chapter, but why it's the first chapter. Yeah, and I was looking more at our allyship study recently and looked at our data and realized that 70% of the people who responded said that people first learn about the need for allyship through a story, through whether that's a story from um, learning about their colleagues' experience, somebody in their family's experience, a friend, even strangers, um, that it was that that was their first aha moment was hearing hearing about somebody else's story um, with uh, an experience with microaggressions with discrimination. Yeah, so it really does uh, the 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 power of us telling our stories, like you said, Jennifer, and also consuming stories and those stories that we tell are so important. Jennifer, you also mentioned the retail chapter, and I, you know, while this show is about workplace empathy and allyship and, and diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think it's important that when we walk out the doors of our offices, whether that's a 
virtual door or physical door or our personal uh, space or, or, or workplace, when we walk out that door that we're still holding true to our values around diversity, around empathy, inclusion, allyship as well. So, um, and we're also going into the holidays for many people. So let's talk about retail a little bit. What did you find there? Where, what are some themes that people might take into um, their next retail experience? We do talk a bit about supplier diversity. Um, mm-hmm. And then Rohit, I'll, I'll kick over to you. But I, as a diverse supplier, we're designated as a woman-owned and LGBT-owned business. Mm-hmm. And um, the choices, however small, that we all make, because every day we procure a service, right? We buy something, we make those choices. And the research is more and more available about how to patronize strategically. And really those choices and the difference that they make. And so for me, as someone who sells to larger organizations as a vendor, their choice to support us means that you know they're they are furthering the economy of founders that look like me and you and and Rohit. Um, they're also encouraging the innovation that we bring uh, because we solve problems differently because of our lens of identity, both obvious and non-obvious. And our lived experience. And so um, I get to include a little bit about that, which is a passion of mine, because I believe that it's such a great equalizer. It's so powerful where we spend our dollars. And we have so much, we have so much choice in that. And if our strategy, just like in the workplace, which I'm sure we'll talk about, if our strategy is to like true up economic opportunity, you know, in the workplace, the opportunity is to true up the talent, the composition of our talent so that it reflects the world that we do business in. Like that's what needs to happen. And we're woefully behind on that. Mm. But what if our spending were to mirror our priorities and the way that we want the world to be more balanced? And so I just, uh, I, I loved being able to write about that and, and bring that concept because it feels like such a niche concept, but really every dollar we make a choice about, we have the opportunity to make a different choice and to share our choices so that we can educate more others about the fact that this is true economic change that we're creating when we make those choices. So that was that was one thing I was excited about. Rohit, what, did, what would you like to share? This chapter in particular, the retail chapter, is a great example of how we could take one element and explore multiple dimensions of it because the mm-hmm. consumption side of it, which Jennifer was talking about, is huge in terms of how we decide to spend our money and the statement we make by spending our money with some vendors or in some places versus others. The flip side of that is is the actual making of the stuff itself and how we get what role innovation plays and what role having a more diverse team plays in the products that you even create in the first place and who they're created for and who they're marketed to. And so we have so many powerful examples from a, an eyeglasses company that started making glasses for people with wider nose, nose frames. Um, that really wasn't in the market before because nobody making the glasses had a nose that looked like that. And so they never thought that somebody might want that until finally the team got more diverse and then the products became more diverse. Or you look at all of these motorcycle brands that for decades marketed (laughs) their motorcycles exclusively to men, Mm -hmm. thinking that only men would want to ride motorcycles. And now for most of those same manufacturers, the fastest growing consumer segment they have is women 
riding motorcycles. And they never would have thought of that decades ago. And so you think near about these Near and dear to my effects. heart, by the way. I don't know if you know that, but that's near and dear to my heart. <laughs> Is it? Okay, see, so you're yeah, I was just talking about that. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know Melinda that, but see that? There's, perfect example. There's proof, yeah. Yeah, there's proof right there. There's proof right there, you yeah. know? Because exactly that. Like, we're so traditional sometimes in the way that we see who the audience is for something mm-hmm. or who would be interested in something that we sh- we basically put on blinders for ourselves and we censor our own perspective and we never look at anything broader than that until we are challenged to do it and we could challenge ourselves to do it and really great innovative people constantly do that for themselves but Another way to do it, a highly effective way to do it, is to bring more diverse team members into the team who spot those deficiencies and spot those opportunities right away because it's just who they are. And the more diverse and inclusive we can make our teams, the more we can actually bring that type of perspective in, which is exactly what any company should want to do because that generates real dollars of benefit. It's not just something that they could do for show or for PR reasons, which is not a good reason to, to do this. I mean, you, you should care deeply about why, why it matters, but there's a real impact there too. And that was something we found over and over again in a real message we tried to put forward, not only in the retail chapter, but across the entire book. Mm-hmm. If I could add, Melinda, the, um, I want to make a plug for retailers that are moving beyond the gender binary in terms of how they structure their stores you know, um, talk about good for the bottom line to Rohit's point of accessing young people and all of their interests and, you know, enabling though the flow through different toy sections, for example, you know, in a way that's not structured in the binary. It seems so obvious. I think we're going to look a lot, you know, in the back rearview mirror at these traditional structures and wonder, you know, how much we missed and, and how Byzantine they were and, and how they sort of outlived. They were never useful. They were never true. Um, we know this now. We know that gender identity is a continuum. We know that, you know, one out of five under 35-year-olds identifies as not straight and not cisgender. So one mm-hmm. out of five of everyone under the age of 35. And yet we have a boy sections and girl sections, you know, so I I really welcome retailers are in many ways, I think, um, challenging themselves to Rohit's point about how can we speak to this, this changing cost, our changing, it's not that the customer is changing, it's our changing understanding of, of humans and how they identify. And I just think that's such an important, to me, I, it's breathtaking when you see a retailer really embrace this loudly and proudly. And I know courageously because I'm sure that there is pushback and challenge that comes along with it. But overall, they're going to win the long term. I don't like the war and the battle wording, but they will prevail because they are ahead of where this whole conversation is going, yeah. which is that that sort of total choice about how who how I identify whether or not that's visible to the external world, the retailer that speaks that language and truly understands that and is willing to structure their stores accordingly will win. Yeah, we, uh, uh, when we did our, I think it was the, our second tech inclusion conference years ago, one of our volunteers, well, we have two um, different fits for shirts. And we had this debate, like, do we call them men's and women's? No, we can't do that. And so we ended up saying, well, when is curvy and what is straight fit? And how simple is that? Like, <laughs> like, I mean, it's just like things like that. We just need to rethink just a little bit, just a little tweak. And 
uh, women's motorcycle clothing is a whole nother thing. Like that oh, they're all that's, yeah. pink and purple <laughs> and, <laughs> and turquoise, which is yeah, fantastic if that's what you like and not. I smell a business opportunity, mm. Melinda. Oh, mm. there's so much opportunity in the world. <laughs> and there are some great women's brands that are starting to yeah. emerge and um, and the issue is that they need funding. And, and of course, you have that entrepreneurship mm-hmm. section, too, because it's all interrelated, right? That that um, right. that these women women's motorcycle brands tend to have receive less funding. And so it's harder for them mm-hmm. to grow. And so, yeah, it's all interconnected. Um, there was this other piece that really caught my eye, too, in the leadership section, Um so uh, I a lot of people know my story because it's in my TED talk, and I and I also talk about it quite a bit in my in my talks. Is that I hit the glass ceiling, and it, when I was a, a executive, I hit the glass ceiling. I was in a very non inclusive workplace, toxic environment, and it's kind of my awareness moment to leave my job and leave the that that corporate space to really create change through change catalyst and um, create a more diverse equitable and inclusive tech culture in particular in particular one of the takeaways in that leadership section is that the glass ceiling can't be replaced with the glass cliff and I know what that means but I think a lot of people don't know that means what that means maybe you could talk about that a bit I love how language evolves and gets more specific um, mm-hmm. we could say it's the the pink ceiling or the pink cliff too. I I think of LGBTQ people, right? And pink Mm -hmm, is a big color for the community. So I think what it speaks to is our, I think we have a clearer understanding of when you reach the, the rarefied air, if you will, up there, right? As you move, you know, we might have solved some issues with promotion and advancement and we're, we're endeavoring to have a more representative cohort of talent moving up. But, you know, maybe you don't hit a ceiling, but maybe you get put in a role (laughs) where that role is extremely risky and perilous and you lack the support and the mentorship and sponsorship that most people that would achieve that place would be in a way protected by and uh, supported with. And so when you are the first and the only to achieve something, the risk of being there. And they call it a cliff because you fall, it's literally like succeed or or disaster, you know? And this is um, such a no-win proposition because here you are having endeavored to run the gauntlet up the pipeline (laughs) and you achieve something only to not be supported and only to sort of have to break through, you know, bushwhack your way through every single day. And if it's not something disastrous, like a crisis that you're, you're handed to manage that nobody has succeeded in managing, mm-hmm. you get the hardest jobs, you get the most perilous work, but you are also are doing so with, with less institutional support and sort of implicit and sort of behind the scenes support too, because every first knows how difficult it is. You really, really feel very exposed. And um, so I think that our understanding has gotten more mature about what actually happens to derail that successful first, that first that gets through. And then the challenge, as you know, Melinda and Rohit, you might or might not know this, but the penalty then of not succeeding and becoming this image of, oh, well, we tried that or we promoted or we did what we were told to do, but this person didn't succeed. There's so much more to the story than that. 
institutions don't, the reason we're, we're the first to get to the table that we get to is that the institution has never supported anyone to get to where we've gotten. Mm. And so the fatigue is real, the risk is real, and it's terrible and tragic that all of a sudden people would say, you know, write this off, you know, and, and sort of say, well, that strategy didn't work without acknowledging the fact that the workplace wasn't built by and for so many of us. And we weren't at the table to build that workplace. And so when we don't succeed, like mm-hmm. for whatever reason, it's not a fair assessment of our pro- our performance, our potential, our abilities, and worse to get scapegoated. I mean, mm-hmm. so anyway, we do, we do go into that in the leadership uh, chapter, which was one of my favorite chapters, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> for obvious reasons um, and not obvious reasons, right? And um, non-obvious. <laughs> and I would say, one thing I would say is that it's not just that, that it's the first, it's also the, it's the only, um, because you, uh, there are many organizations and including the one that I was in where they had, I was not the first, but I was the only, and it was a series of the onlys over time. And, and each, each of us somehow didn't work out. And so I, I do think that that's a, that's an important piece of that too. Is there a a particular area that, that you uh, were hit that really hit home for you in the book that were, where you were like, wow, this is, this is something that I hadn't thought of, or this is something that was surprising to me that very non-obvious thing that that stood out for you. The the short answer is almost every chapter. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something like that. We talked about culture, identity, and family. And that was kind of this set of understanding yourself and understanding the ecosystem of where you live. And a lot of my work like Jennifer has been in companies, you know, in corporations where you talk all the time about leadership or entrepreneurship or innovation, you don't really talk as much about culture, identity, and family. Those seem like outside of business types of topics. And, you know, as you get into DEI focused conversations, obviously you do talk about that a little bit more than if you're just doing innovation work or, or marketing or storytelling. But for me, the process of researching and writing those chapters was deeply introspective because you can't write about culture, identity, or family without thinking about your own culture, identity, and family and how that differs from others. And one of the things we haven't really talked about is that this book is not just Jennifer or my perspective. We also had six contributors to the book um, who are listed on the cover and uh, who are on the back cover who offered their perspectives as well. And then we had 200 speakers from our summit who were all basically interviews and and friends and early people who contributed their perspectives and, and quotes and things for the book. And then we brought in another eight sensitivity readers to read the book. Uh, and offer critiques on the writing when we were at a very late stage of writing and then change things based on their feedback also. So this book really was a village (laughs) um, in the sense of lots and lots of different perspectives. And we did that very intentionally because we wanted to create a space where we could hear from perspectives other than our own. And so I learned a lot personally from that process of going through that because I mean, this is for me, at least this is my eighth book. So I'm not new to writing books, but this process was the first time that I'd done it this way with this many people involved. And generally what you hear when it comes to anything is you don't want too many, whatever the cliche is, you don't want too many cooks in the kitchen or you don't want too many people stirring the 
pie or I don't, I don't know what the what the thing is, but you know, it's um, it's heard often that when you bring in too many perspectives, that's a bad thing. And in this case, with this book, the non-obvious learning we had is that actually it doesn't have to be a bad thing if you do it in a strategic and thoughtful way. And I feel like we did that because it didn't derail us. It didn't blow out our timeline by months and months and months. It didn't force us to throw away 12 chapters that we wrote and start all over again. We didn't have those types of issues. What it helped us do is refine and get better and better so that ultimately the words that we put down on paper and the way that we talked about the book, whether you pick up the physical book or you listen to the audio book or the, or the ebook, or we soon will have a large print edition of the book also, no matter what version of the book you get, everything has been very thoughtfully put in, in a certain way. And we reduced, uh, which anybody know, anybody who's edited anything knows, it gets better if you cut it down. Um, it's better when it's shorter. Uh, and so we did that process. Uh, we considered the painful. language that we used. <laughs> it's painful. It's always painful. Um, yeah. But afterwards, you are much prouder of the result in general. And I think that's where we ended up. Like we're really proud of the result because it has just the right number of words, not too many, not too few. It is very intentional in terms of the capitalization of the words that we used or the terms oh, that we yes. put in. I mean, everything is so considered in this book. And we wanted to do that because it's a book about diversity and it's a book about inclusive thinking, obviously, but also because this is not a book that is going to be dated after six months or a year. This is a book that we wanted people to be able to pick up 10 or 20 years from now and still learn something from. And when you have as many stories in the book as we did in this book, doing that and featuring people of today while still trying to write a book that is timely 20 years from now is not an easy thing to think about as a writer. But I feel like we were able to do that. And that's really meaningful for me because the process of doing that and the journey to get there was something I learned a huge amount from. And hopefully anybody who reads the book will also grow as a result of reading it in that way. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that that process is something that we can take to writing any book and also to developing any product, any service as well. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, it's uh, it's basically, I mean, and it's hard. It's asking more questions and learning from other perspectives besides your own. That's the snapshot <laughs> of mm-hmm. what we tried to do in this book. And that is something that I don't think you need a PhD in diversity if such a thing exists in order to do. Mm. If I could say, Melinda, I know you know a lot about inclusivity readers, also known as sensitivity readers, but it was incredible to be able to run our writing through that filter and have really rich discussions about terminology and the fact that language is changing so quickly. Mm. You know, we had to make some hard calls, but then at least we we dedicated some space to write about those hard calls mm-hmm. and very transparently. You know, for example, capitalizing black, but not capitalizing white. We actually, we had a whole, like almost, I mean, I learned so much. We should write a paper on the mm-hmm. state of those choices and what they mean. Me and who they <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have the same, you know, same conversation. You know. as well, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and we could Absolutely. have gone either way. We almost like could have argued it either way, but in the end, 
I made a call. We made a call to actually capitalize white so that yeah, we made sure the that there was really, yeah. so mm-hmm. yeah. So that, you know, and, and we researched it and, and explained why mm-hmm. the choice was made. So anyway, it's, yeah. So it's yeah. good to know that it's good to know we're on the same page. We actually did um, choose, yeah, choose the same, <laughs> <laughs> same path. And I think, um, yeah, yeah, it, it is a hard, it hard one. And I think the, the, the key, and I did the same is to talk about it and to, to be open about it and honest about it and know that language is going to change. And um, yeah. One thing you both in the introduction talked about some humbling moments for you where you either made mistakes or you found growth opportunities as allies. Um, would you mind sharing those? Um, in, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of time left, but I would love to hear. We would love to hear those. I had a number of them just as, as a male working in uh, the worlds that I've worked. And, uh, you know, I have a little bit, I think, of a different perspective because I've always, for my entire career, worked in an industry that was probably more than 50% female. But a lot of the leadership in marketing and advertising remains male. So Mm -hmm. leadership is male dominated, but the industry is actually more female um, dominated. And so that gave me this sort of perspective that I think was a little bit different in how I saw the world. And for me, an awakening really came from realizing in a situation as a professional speaker that I had agreed to do an event that had not elevated any female speakers to the role of keynotes. So they had an entirely male roster of keynotes. It wasn't a manal because, you know, we weren't all on the panel together. We were all solo speakers, but Mm. the effect was kind of the same thing, which is they had lots of men on stage as keynotes. And though they had female speakers, they weren't keynote speakers. Mm -hmm. And it was an event about marketing, which as I said, is more than 50% female. And so, you know, not that the topic should matter, but that should certainly lean more towards having females. And when I said yes to the event, I didn't know or particularly care uh, who the other speakers were. And only after realizing that did I think to myself, I probably should have asked. And that to me was an awakening because it's easy as a solo speaker to deflect responsibility for something like that. I mean, it's not my event. I didn't organize it. I didn't choose the speakers. I'm just a guy who was invited and said yes, right? Uh, And so it'd be relatively easy for me to dismiss any responsibility for that. And probably I have done that many times in the past without realizing it. And in the process of sort of becoming part of this conversation and writing this book, I realized that that's essentially being a bystander. And I need to be better than that. And so it forced me to actually have a reckoning with myself to say, look, when I say yes to an event, I need to pay more attention to who's on stage. And if it's not diverse, and this is not just about women on stage, this is about diversity in every aspect, right? If it's not diverse in terms of who they're inviting to the stage, I need to either create an impact to bring more of those speakers from my own network to that event or decline to participate. And The discipline of doing that has actually been really educational for me because it made something that I felt like was not my issue to solve, it became my issue to solve. And that was really an important moment for me in the process of doing this whole thing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Jennifer? Yeah. Yeah. We all all have stories like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I have gone, traveled the same path as Rohit has on that front. You know, mine is a small example, but it 
It's so powerful. I, uh, Rohit and I shared the audiobook recording duties. And so we split up the chapters and we alternated. And the process of taking the time to pronounce names correctly, we have so many storytellers in this book. I think perhaps the old me would have stumbled through how to pronounce names. What I did this time is we literally resourced the researching of pronunciation and we had some, we went through and found the person articulating their own name online and phonetically spelled them out. And then I practiced them and got them into my ears and did several takes or many takes in some cases to make sure that I was pronouncing it in the way that they pronounced their name. And this reminds me, as you know, Melinda, the importance of our names to us, of our pronouns to us, right? How we identify and what it feels like to have somebody skip over that, somebody to make assumptions about what nicknames they want to call us or the small choices that are so insignificant to some of us that are so significant to others, I think is a real, it's a real call to action and reminder. And so I just wanted to show what our internal process was like with that and how much I enjoyed that process of listening to the storyteller articulate their name in their way and then trying to do it justice to the extent that I could. And and it's a responsibility that we all have. And so if we need to slow down to go fast, we need to take that moment to understand how people want to be called, to inquire, and then to commit it to memory ideally never needing to ask again, Mm -hmm. and then correcting others if we hear it mispronounced, um, their pronoun, their name, et cetera. This is such an important way to honor people. So it felt really important to me, and I I will never approach this kind of endeavor again or moderate a panel, you know, the same again because of of the way that we we now have committed to researching this. Um, So... I, I just, I loved that. It was, it was, and I loved the audiobook. In fact, the audiobook is coming out soon. Rohit, do you, oh, it's out. Exactly? Yeah, it's, it's out. out. It's, it's out. out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's up. Yay. Nice. Yep. So exciting. So yeah, we're That's very, awesome. we're very thrilled about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say that it's, it's, um, it takes another step in remote conferences often. <laughs> um, so I've, I, we, I've emceed our own conferences many times. And so I'll just, you know, backstage, we'll ask somebody to say their name and repeat it for me so that I make sure that I say it on stage. And then uh, we had our virtual conferences and I suddenly found myself, wait a minute, I can't, there's no backstage. <laughs> and and, I will, and I, one of the things that, that I find fascinating is that most people don't know how to phonetically say it, write their names either. And so um, people would, we tried that, but that didn't really work very well. I think that that's something that maybe we could consider in the virtual space is, is, is more um, of teaching each other how to phonetically say, write it down so that, and read it um, so that we can learn. But yeah, it's, I, I found it really challenging in the virtual space to, to make sure that I do that. So uh, as a part of going beyond diversity, and, and, and then this is a part of the show too, is that um, we want to make sure that people take action as a result. And so I would ask you, you both to, um, to name one action that you would really like people to take as they come away from listening to this today. You mean besides buying the book and reading it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but besides writing the, buying the book, but we'll, we'll definitely um, have a link for that. Yeah. <laughs> can't, can't take the marketing guy out of the, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, um, yeah, I would say that 
one of the biggest things that has had an impact in my entire career has been to consume media that is not intentionally created for me. And whether that's a TV show or a movie or a book or a magazine, I advocate this all the time to groups that I go and speak to, to workshops that I do. Uh, you have to find new sources of information that are not created with you in mind. And especially today, when we have social media and algorithms, understanding what we like and who we are to a much deeper level than ever before, social media is really good at serving you up stories that you either agree with or stories that are guaranteed to make you angry and frustrated and not serving you stories that will open your mind or perspective to other things in a positive way. And so if we're going to do that, we have to get away from the algorithm. You can't just go on to Facebook or Twitter or any of these platforms or even Google because uh, guess how Google's algorithm works for any search results. It reads what you have in your Gmail, which by the way is also owned by Google mm -hmm. and serves you up search results that are based on your Gmail. So and, the search results also, I get are different from the search results you get. Yeah, right? and Netflix and Amazon also have those algorithms, by the way. Also, you have yeah. to go behind and go deeper to, to find some of those movies that, that aren't intentionally made for you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or use bl or blind browsers or use like things that intentionally get you outside of it. Or the secret weapon in a digital world is to, I believe, is to read stuff in print. If you pick up a magazine, a physical magazine, it's the same one, no matter who you are. Uh, the magazine. Now it varies a little bit regionally. So, you know, you might get slightly different ads depending on where you buy it, but pretty much it's the same magazine and that doesn't exist online. I mean, even headlines of stories get changed algorithmically based on who you are and what your platform is that, that you're coming to the article with. Mm. So you have to intentionally break yourself out of that by consuming media that the algorithm can't massage. And it doesn't require special access, special, you know, uh, FBI level clearance to do it. You just have to walk into a, a Hudson bookstore in an airport and pick up a magazine that you'd never otherwise pick up. Mm. So it's within our control, but we have to choose to do it. So that to me was the biggest takeaway from this and from all of my other work. And I hope that if people read this book and want to broaden their own perspectives, that this is one of the ways that they could do that. Yeah, great point. Thanks, Rohit. I love that. I would, I would add, um, how about we challenge ourselves to think about what is non-obvious about ourselves, about our stories and our journey as storytellers? You know, um, if I'd never been challenged to give a TED Talk, and Melinda, you've been there. Rohit, have you given a TED Talk? I'm sure you have. <laughs> sure, many, many talks. Uh, but we all are speakers here. And we all remember that moment when we were afraid to make the non-obvious obvious in front mm -hmm. of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. But that is an imp a crucible moment in our lives when we decide that my story is more powerful being heard and I am being witnessed by others makes me stronger. And so I might challenge us heading into the holidays, especially, which is, which is tricky times when we're faced with perhaps some <laughs> loved ones and others in our ecosystem where that disagreement may be there. Understanding that what is non-obvious about us is, is actually so common and shared and appreciated in the world, but we, we tend to play small. We don't think it's consequential. We don't believe in the transformation 
that is available to us through telling our non-obvious stories. And so I always encourage, I went through that process too. I thought I didn't matter. I thought nobody wanted to hear it. I didn't, I didn't think it had the power to transform, but we do it anyway. (laughs) Like we Mm -hmm. don't, we can't forecast the kinds of change that we may create in the ripple effect that we may never be here to see. And we may never know occurs, but the leap of faith that we need to make over and over again is to be more truthful and also to shine a light with our non-obvious identity, shine a light for others who desperately need to see that lighthouse. So I, I would challenge us to all think about how are we moving along that that road? Because uh, your story matters and what's not visible has tremendous power to be world-changing. In addition to what is seen and visible about us, there's so much under our waterline as if we are icebergs that if we were to elevate it, we could create community where there is none and enable people to feel less alone and less isolated. So um, I just love to kind of come back to that as my magnetic north for the work that that I do and we all do mm-hmm. together. Is um, We're sort of in many ways, the three of us on the other side of that because we're so accustomed to doing it. But I just want to give a shout out to those who are early in the journey. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Um, Rohit, what, what is that link where people can find the book? It is nonobviousdiversity.com. And not only can you find the book there, but the summit that we mentioned, you can watch almost 50 hours of content totally for free straight from that link as well. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you both for this lovely conversation. Appreciate you. you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Melinda. And all right, everyone, we will see you next week. To learn more about this episode's topic, visit ally.cc. Allyship is a journey. It's a journey of self-exploration, learning, unlearning, healing, and taking consistent action. And the more we take action, the more we grow as leaders and transform our communities. So what action will you take today? Please share your actions and learning with us by emailing podcast at changecatalyst.co or on social media, because we'd love to hear from you. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel and share this. Let's keep building allies around the world. Leading with Empathy and Allyship is an original show by Change Catalyst, where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. Appreciate you listening to our show and taking action as an ally. See you next week.